One of my uh, favorite Christian scholars, probably one of the most influential scholars of the second half of the 20th century, was a man by the name of Francis Schaeffer. Uh, if you've never read any of Francis Schaeffer's work, I would strongly encourage you to do so. Uh, the man was truly prophetic in the sense of understanding the direction of our culture and where we are headed. Uh, I, I was reading recently his book, Death in the City. It's a book I've read a number of times. It's powerful, profound commentary on the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament. If you recall, Jeremiah was a contemporary of Daniel. Daniel and his friends were shipped off into exile to Babylon, but there were Jews who remained behind in the conquered city of Jerusalem. And uh, one of those was the prophet Jeremiah. And he ministered to God's people after the conquest of Jerusalem and the, the nation of Judah and to those who were left behind uh, in captivity, really, in Babylon, but yet in their home country, uh, living in the desolation that had happened as a result of Nebuchadnezzar's conquest of, of Jerusalem. Well, Francis Schaeffer wrote a great commentary on that whole situation and applied it to our post-Christian culture today. I want to share some of his thoughts with you here. Uh, this is from the introduction to his book, Death in the City. He says, but if we are looking across the history of the world to see those times when men knew the truth and turned away, let us say emphatically that there is no exhibition of this anywhere in history so clearly in such a short time as in our own generation. Men of our time knew the truth and yet turned away turned away not only from the biblical truth, the religious truth of the Reformation, but turned away from the total culture built upon that truth, which included the balance of freedom and form which the Reformation brought forth in Northern Europe, in the state and society, a balance which has never been known anywhere in the world before. Having turned away from the knowledge given by God, man has now lost the whole Christian culture. In Europe, including England, it took many years. In the United States, only a few decades. Ours is a post-Christian world in which Christianity, not only in number of Christians, but in cultural emphasis and cultural result, is now in the minority. To ask young people to maintain the status quo is folly. The status quo is no longer ours. Do not take this lightly. It is a horrible thing for a man like myself to look back and see my country and my culture go down the drain in my own lifetime. It is a horrible thing that 60 years ago, you could move across this country and everyone, even non-Christians, would have known what the gospel was. A horrible thing that 40 to 50 years ago, our culture was built on a Christian consensus and now we are in an absolute minority. As Christians in this period of history, we are faced with some crucial questions. The first one being this. What should our perspective be as we acknowledge the post-Christian character of our culture? Interesting thoughts. Especially interesting to me that he wrote these words in 1969. 54 years ago. And how much more has our culture fallen in that time? Francis Schaeffer declares that ours is a post-Christian culture. We are living in the midst of Babylon. 
This, this world that we live in is not our home. We read that throughout Scripture, but increasingly we are recognizing that we truly are exiles in a foreign land. And not only a foreign land, but a hostile land, a hostile culture, a culture hostile to the revelation and will of our Creator God. And so as Schaefer asked there at the, at the end of that introduction, what should be our posture? How should we then live in this post-Christian context that we find ourselves in today? And that's really one of the questions that, that is at the heart of the book of Daniel. What does it look like? How do we live as exiles in a foreign land, a, a culture hostile to the truth of our creator God? This was the issue that Daniel and his friends were dealing with as they were taken from Judah, from Jerusalem, into captivity in Babylon. We saw this last week, how Daniel and his friends were taken away. They were separated from their families, isolated in a pagan land. They were entered into a re-indoctrination program uh, where they were reprogrammed, trying to take all of their Hebrew and biblical roots away and reprogram them with uh, Babylonian values and Babylonian religion and Babylonian worldview. And we saw last week that Daniel and his friends resolved that they would remain faithful to God. They would, they, they would only go so far in terms of their accommodation to what Nebuchadnezzar was asking of them. But when it came to disobeying direct commands of God in Scripture, that's where Daniel and his friends said, no, we're, we're going to honor God. And as we saw last week, God honored Daniel and his friends for their faithfulness to him. Well, this morning we're going to continue on looking at this question of how we are to live in the midst of Babylon. And specifically today we're going to look at the question of what does it look like to live wisely in Babylon? What does the life of wisdom look like in a hostile culture, a pagan land where we find our biblical values uh, increasingly under attack by the culture around us. Well, this is what we're going to find in our passage this morning, some tremendous wisdom, important wisdom, from the example of Daniel and his friends in terms of what it looks like to live wisely in Babylon. We're in Daniel chapter 2 this morning, uh, verses 1 through 23. Daniel chapter 2, without exaggeration, is one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. We're going to look at that beginning this morning, but then next week we're going to see where Daniel uh, interprets a dream that we're going to see referenced this morning in our passage, a dream that God gave King Nebuchadnezzar, a dream that Daniel would interpret, which was really a prophetic look into the future about what God was going to do in world history, in the world empires to come after Babylon, in the coming of the ultimate Messiah, in the advance of his kingdom. Uh, this chapter is tremendously profound in our understanding of both the work of the Messiah, the kingdom, and eschatology, end times. And so we're going to deal with a lot of that uh, in the coming weeks. But this morning, we're going to look specifically at the practical realities that Daniel and his friends faced as a result of this crisis, the, the crisis brought on by the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had. And we're going to see that in a moment. You're going to notice here this morning that our text on the screen looks a little bit different. 
We had a last-minute uh, hiccup with our software that runs my sermon notes, and so uh, we apologize for uh, the confusion this morning, if there is any. Uh, some of the text I reference may not appear on the screen. We're going to do our best, but you'll notice last minute this morning, I was hurriedly, frantically marking my Bible, uh, trying to uh, index all the references that I wanted to bring out in our passage this morning. So uh, bear with us. We'll do our best to, uh, to go through this together. Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 through 23. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came, and they stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your house shall be laid in ruins. This was a really nice guy, this Nebuchadnezzar, right? <laughs> All right. Now again, do you see the courage that it must have took for Daniel to stand resolved in the face of this kind of an individual, right? This was no light matter to stand faithful and honor God in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 6 goes on, but if you show the dream in its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream in its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know a certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation." The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of, the, of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. 
He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what was asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. We're going to leave you on a little cliffhanger there to discover what the interpretation and the dream was all about uh, next Sunday. But here in our passage, we see this this crisis that's arisen in Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar has had these dreams. These dreams are troubling him. He's looking for an interpretation. He brings in all the magicians and sorcerers and wise men of Babylon to help him. They're scheming, you know, trying to get hints. Okay, king, what's this dream all about? King's like, no, no, if you really can interpret dreams, you tell me what I dreamed, and then I'll believe you have some real power. And they ultimately say, well, only the gods can reveal that kind of knowledge. There's no man on earth who can do that. And the king is so furious, he's about to destroy all the wise men of Babylon, including Daniel and his three friends. And then we see Daniel respond. We're going to deal with all of these matters here this morning. We see in this passage, though, really the the issue that comes to light is what it looks like to live wisely in Babylon. And again, Babylon for Daniel was literal Babylon for us. It's a metaphor for the pagan hostile culture in which we find ourselves in today. I want to highlight here this morning three keys for us for living wisely in Babylon. And again, I'm not sure they're going to make it on the screen this morning, so you'll have to do your best to follow me, and I'll try to highlight these notes for you as best I can. But three keys to living wisely in Babylon. Number one, we need to avoid the peril of the foolish. We need to avoid the peril of the foolish. At the heart of our passage this morning is the question of where wisdom is truly found. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 through 20, the Apostle Paul says this, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Paul here in 1 Corinthians 3 says, Let the wise become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. Now, what are we talking about here when we are talking about wisdom and the wisdom of the wise versus the wisdom of the fool? Well, when we talk about wisdom, wisdom, a a common definition, a definition I've used over the years for wisdom is wisdom is knowledge in action. Wisdom is knowledge in action. And when it comes to wisdom, there are two kinds of wisdom that are spoken of in the scriptures. There is true wisdom, and there is worldly wisdom, all right? True wisdom and worldly wisdom. True wisdom is knowledge rooted in God's revelation, acted upon, 
All right? So true wisdom is knowledge rooted in God's revelation that we then act upon. For example, Jesus in Matthew 7, 24 through 27 says, whoever hears these words of mine is like a wise man. Whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house upon a rock. So Jesus here tells us two things. He says, it's one thing to hear these words of mine. It's another thing to put them into practice. But the truly wise person not only receives the truth from God, but then seeks to practice that truth, act upon that truth. That's true wisdom according to Scripture. It's knowledge in accordance with God's revelation that we then act upon. Now, what is worldly wisdom? Worldly wisdom is very different from true wisdom, godly wisdom. Worldly wisdom is knowledge that is cut off from God's revelation that we act upon. So it's knowledge. There is some learning and discernment involved, but it's not knowledge rooted in God's truth. It's knowledge rooted in our human finite understanding that we then act upon. In Romans chapter 1, 18 through 32, the apostle Paul says, professing to be wise, they have become fools. Why? Because they exchanged, they exchanged the truth of God for lies. They exchanged the truth of God's revelation for human wisdom and human knowledge. Professing to be wise, they have become fools. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, the worst sort of clever men are those who know better than the Bible. That's what worldly wisdom is, friends. It's saying that we know better than our creator God. And it's knowledge divorced from God's revealed truth that is then acted upon in this world. That's worldly wisdom. And it never leads to anything good or productive. Let me give you some examples of this worldly wisdom. This past week, 2,500 of our global elites, world leaders from around the world, gathered in Davos, Switzerland for an event called the World Economic Forum. And this is a group of world leaders and big business uh, moguls and celebrities. And, and these elites are going to save the world. Why does the world need saving? Well, friends, don't you know we are in the midst of a climate crisis. The world is going to be destroyed. And some say as soon as 2030, we need to make radical changes. And fortunately for us, we have these global elites in Davos who are going to lead the way and save the world for us. Interestingly, not only were these 2,500 global elites in Davos flying there in their private jet, but the mainstream media reported that thousands of high-end prostitutes also flooded into Davos this past week. Interesting. And these are the people who are going to save our world for us. And what is their prognosis? Well, the world is doomed. We're, we're going to destroy this world in a, an environmental catastrophe. And so what we need to do is we basically need to reorganize the planet. And interestingly enough, this reorganization looks a whole lot like Marxism and socialism. And so we're going to remove all of, all, we're going to take away all of your prosperity. We're going to take away all of your industry. We're going to force everybody into uh, communist utopian cities, urban centers, where you will own nothing. You're going to eat bugs. We're not going to eat meat anymore. We're going we're to eat bugs. 
We're not going to drive any cars. We're not going to use any fossil fuels. And we're going to save the planet. That's, that's the prognosis of our global elite. And that's their diagnosis and their, their means of saving us. But what does God's word tell us about this? Friends, let me tell you something very clearly. This world is not in a climate catastrophe. And this world is not going to end in a climate crisis. And young people, you are being brainwashed on a daily basis to believe that this world is going to end in cataclysmic climate catastrophe. It is not. How do I know that? I know that because the Bible tells us in 2 Peter 3, verse 7, that this world is being kept by God for the day of judgment. And we read in Genesis chapter 8 and Genesis chapter 9 after the flood of Noah that God says, never again am I going to destroy this world. And God says from this day forward until the day of judgment, until the end of the earth, in Genesis chapter 9, he says, from this day forward, seed time and harvest, cold and hot, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And then he tells Noah and his family, be fruitful. What is that? That's prosperity. He tells them to multiply, advance, and spread upon the earth. These global elites in Davos, they're arguing that we need to depopulate the world down to 2 billion people in order to save the planet. God says, be fruitful and multiply. And then God goes on and he tells Noah, I give you everything on the earth to use. And I give you every plant and every animal for food. This is God's knowledge versus man's knowledge. Now, friends, where am I going to go? Who am I going to choose to follow? John Kerry and our global elite in Davos, Switzerland, or the word of God? Right? This world is not going to end in a climate catastrophe. You have worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom. Now, again, don't hear me saying that we shouldn't be good stewards of our environment. That is also a biblical mandate. But we do not need to fear a climate catastrophe. It's not going to happen. The only catastrophe that's going to happen for this world is when the great white throne judgment happens and God dissolves this world in a fire. That's what's going to happen according to 2 Peter chapter 3. We could go on with other examples. This past week, worldly wisdom versus God's wisdom. This past week, I got an email with a video from one of our Minnesota state representatives arguing in the legislature this past week for a bill that would mandate uh, feminine hygiene products in all bathrooms in our public schools. Boys' bathrooms, girls' bathrooms. Why do we need feminine hygiene products in all of our bathrooms? Well, according to the state representative, there are non-female menstruators who might need them. Now, again, this woman who's arguing for this, she's a smart woman, I'm sure, but she's exercising worldly wisdom, not true biblical wisdom. See, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 5, that in the beginning, God created them male and female. There's no such thing as non-female menstruators. All right? That's basic science. It goes back to God's created norms for humanity. But you see, when we divorce knowledge from God's revelation and act upon it, we are now walking in worldly wisdom. And we end up doing foolish things like seeking to put feminine hygiene products in little boys bathrooms all right 
Another example, worldly wisdom. Sadly, this even creeps into the church. All right, this isn't just a secular culture issue. This happens in the church. There are literally thousands of churches across the country this morning whose pastors are not preaching from God's word, but they're preaching sermons rooted in psychology and psychiatry and philosophy and political science and social science. They'll tell you everything except what God's word has to say. And it's really interesting because the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4 says to Timothy that we are to preach the word in season and out of season. Preach the word. And then he goes on, why do you preach the word, Timothy? Because a day is coming when people will want their itching ears tickled. They're going to seek after preachers who will tell them what they want to hear. Not what God has to say, but what they want to hear. And so that's why we preach the word. Friends, are you seeing what's going on here? There is a worldly wisdom and there is true wisdom. Knowledge rooted in God's revelation that is acted upon. Now, when we go back to our passage this morning, what was Nebuchadnezzar's folly? Well, Nebuchadnezzar's folly, he has this dream. He's looking for an interpretation of this dream, but his folly was threefold. Number one, he sought the wrong people to give him an answer for this dream. We read in verse 2 that he called, the, he called the magicians and the enchanters and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans. These were all the wise men of Babylon. And interestingly, the wise men of Babylon were all men whose discipline was rooted in the occult. The hidden or secret things that are opposed to God, our creator. The magicians in in the, uh, in the uh, Hebrew there, the magicians there in Babylon, these weren't like magicians like we think of guys who perform tricks. Magicians were actually the scribes of Babylon. These were the guys who recorded the, the secret rituals and, and the sorcery that was used to interpret things like dreams. And then he reports that the enchanters came. Who were the enchanters? These were guys who conjured up spirits. Seeking wisdom from the spirit world. And then the sorcerers, the ones who did spells. And, and then the Chaldeans, the Chaldeans are the wise men, the magi. These were guys who interpreted signs in the heavens, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And these are the guys that Nebuchadnezzar called to seek wisdom from. But friends, these were the wrong people if you're looking for wisdom. If we read in De when we read in Deuteronomy 18, when the people of Israel were coming into the promised land, God said, have nothing to do with these occultic kind of practices. God said to his people, when you come into the land that the Lord is giving, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of these nations. God says these practices are abominable in his sight. The, the guys that Nebuchadnezzar is calling for wisdom, God says these are abominations. What are the abominations? Don't let anyone be found among you who burns his son or daughter as an offering, who practices divination, tells fortunes, interpret omens, as a sorcerer, a charmer, a medium, a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. These are the very people that Nebuchadnezzar was seeking wisdom from. God says they're an abomination. And then what does God's word tell us about astrology? The, the, Mal, the, the Chaldeans, the Magi, the wise men that Nebuchadnezzar called. Well, the Bible says the same thing in Isaiah chapter 47. You who are wearied with your many counsels, let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. 
God says, you're burdened by all these false counselors, these so-called wise men who interpret the stars. God, God calls these things an abomination in his sight. Friends, do you know today in America there are 125 million Americans who believe in astrology? There are 70 million who read their horoscopes daily. Even according to a recent survey in the evangelical church, 10% of evangelicals believe in astrology. Dividing the stars, discerning the future from the signs in the heavens. God says this is an abomination. Friends, you shouldn't have anything to do with that if you're currently involved in astrology or horoscopes. God says he brings his judgment upon people because of these things. But these are the people Nebuchadnezzar called. His second folly was he trusted the wrong powers. So now he's trusting in these pagan gods, these occultic gods, these demons, these spirits. He's looking for wisdom from the stars. But God says, no, no, you're not going to find truth there. These are all the wrong powers. If you want to look to the right power, you look to God. Isaiah 44, 6, God says, I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. There's no other God besides Yahweh, the creator. In Exodus 34, 14, he tells us that he is a jealous God. Why would God be jealous? He's jealous because he is the one true God. And all the other gods are imposters. And then he tells us in passages like Proverbs 1-7 that if you want to know true wisdom, look to Yahweh. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of true wisdom. So Nebuchadnezzar, he sought the wrong people. He looked to the wrong powers. And then thirdly, he acquired the wrong proficiency. Friends, when you look to the wrong people and the wrong powers, you're only going to end up in wrong results. And this is what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He just got increasingly frustrated, and it ultimately led to this crisis where all the wise men in Babylon are at risk of being killed because they can't interpret his dream. They even admit they can't interpret his dream. Nobody on earth can do this. Well, there was one person who could do it, and not because of his power, but because he looked to the true power, Yahweh, the creator in heaven. Look at Proverbs Proverbs uh, 1, uh, 29 through 33. Do we have that slide? Proverbs 1, 29 through 33. Because they hated knowledge, did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all of my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and be at ease without dread of disaster. Friends, this is the difference between worldly wisdom and true wisdom rooted in God's revelation. Let me ask you this morning, where are you looking today for wisdom? Are you looking to the wisdom of the world? Maybe like the magi and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the enchanters in Babylon, maybe you're looking to occultic powers. The word occult is a Latin word. It means hidden or secret things. It means tapping into the spirit world, looking for knowledge, looking for power. It means looking to the sun, the moon, and the stars. It means looking to crystals. It means looking to the things in the creation instead of the creator. Friends, if you're involved in the occult today, let me ask you a question. Why on earth would you look to created things when you can look to the creator? 
The Bible calls that foolishness. Maybe it's not the occult, but maybe, maybe science is your great hope. Maybe, maybe you're looking to science to save this world, to, to rescue you from whatever ails you, right? Friends, let me say, science is awesome. I love science. I love studying science. Science is a blessing from God. But understand this, science cannot answer the most fundamental questions of life. Science can't tell us where we came from or the meaning and purpose of our lives or what happens when we die. If you're looking for true knowledge about those most significant issues that we as humans wrestle with, you're not going to find it in science. But you will find it in the revealed truth of our creator God found in scripture. Maybe you're looking to our culture. Maybe you just kind of, you know, put your finger in the air and test the winds of prevailing culture. You know, wherever the culture goes, uh, you know, if the majority of people are going this way, well, it must be right. Friends, let me tell you something. If you're seeking to gain knowledge by following the culture, wisdom by following the culture, culture is like a ship adrift on the sea of relativity. One day over here, another day over there. And there are countless examples of that. For example, our culture today, you know, you ask 95% of people, they'll tell you, you know, gay marriage is totally okay. You want to know something? 20 years ago, it would have been about 5% of the people would have said that. Culture goes like this. From one thing to the next, constantly moving, shifting, changing. Friends, if you want true wisdom and true knowledge, stand on the solid rock of God's revealed truth, the creator. Maybe, maybe it's not culture, but maybe you're trusting in yourself for knowledge. Maybe you're buying into that age-old adage of, well, I'm just going to follow my heart. You know, my heart won't lead me wrong. I'm just, just going to do what feels right and follow my heart. That sounds good, friends, but Jeremiah 17.9 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. See, all of us are fallen, sinful people, born into this world as rebels against our creator God. And if you think following your heart is going to lead you to peace and fulfillment and satisfaction, friends, you are sorely mistaken. True wisdom doesn't come from within us. It comes from looking to the one outside of us, the one who created us, the one who reveals truth to us. Maybe you're looking to religion for wisdom. Maybe you're thinking, well, you know, all this other stuff has failed me. I'm going I'm to try religion. Friends, let me tell you something about religion. Religion has the right motives, but it's the wrong means. If you're seeking peace, if you're seeking knowledge, if you're seeking fulfillment, and you think you're going to find that in religion... Right? Uh, and again, I'm not going to fault anybody for seeking religion because it's the right motive. What is religion? Religion is about how we as men and women find peace with God. But religion, the means for finding peace with God is about what we do to try to make ourselves right with God through our good works, through our rituals, through our sacrifices, through our money. It's all about what we do to try to appease God. That's religion. But the problem with religion is there is nothing that we can ever do. There is never enough that we can do to appease God or satisfy God or make ourselves right with God. Why? Because God is holy and we are not. 
We are sinners. It's like oil and water. You can, you know, you get a five-gallon five gallon bucket of water, you pour motor oil in there. I don't care how much you stir that up, it's never going to mix. Because by nature, they're two separate things. And that's how it is with us and our sinfulness and God and his holiness. We can never enter into his perfect, righteous presence. And so religion won't do it for you. You might have all the right motives in the world. Well, I want to honor God. I want to get my life right with God. I want peace with God. You might have the right motives, but religion is the wrong means. So you might be thinking, well, what is the right means, Jason? Well, the right means, friends, is trusting in God's revealed truth. Trusting in the way, the truth, and the life. God's one and only son who came into this world not to teach us a new religion, but to invite us into a relationship with our creator. A relationship that leads to life and life abundant. A relationship that's rooted not in what we do for him, but what he did for us. See, Jesus Christ came into this world 2,000 years ago and he went to the cross, the perfect son of God, the perfect substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. He laid down his life in humility and submission. He gave his life, shed his blood to cover our sins, to pay our penalty, to pay our debt. He was the sacrifice that brought atonement, peace with God. And when we put our trust in him, the free gift of his amazing grace. Nothing that we do to earn it or work for it or buy it, but when we simply trust in the free gift that Jesus offers us, he invites us into a new relationship with our creator where we can be forgiven and we can know the reality of what it is to be a child of God, truly at peace with him. So again, friends, we have a choice. You have the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of, the, uh, wisdom of God. Where are you going to look? Where are you going to place your hope? Are, are you going to look for wisdom in, in these worldly avenues, or are you going to look for wisdom in the truth given to us by our Creator? It's very interesting, the Gospel of John. The Apostle John starts out his biography of Jesus' life and ministry with, with these words in John chapter 1, verse 4. He says, in him, in Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of men. Friends, so many people in our world today are stumbling around in the darkness, looking for answers, looking for meaning and purpose in life, looking for hope. But there's a light that's shown into the darkness. And that light has a name. His name is Jesus. And when we put our hope and trust in him, he reveals God's truth. When we embrace that truth and act upon it, he sets us on a path that leads to life and life abundant. And we can know true fulfillment and peace with our creator God. That's the choice set out before us this morning. It's the choice that we saw Nebuchadnezzar face. It's the choice that Daniel and his friends face. We're going to see next week how Daniel and his friends responded to this crisis and how God honored their faithful response, not trusting in the wisdom of the world, but trusting in God's wisdom. And in trusting in God's wisdom, God honors that, reveals the interpretation of the dream, and unleashes this incredible prophecy that is still blessing our world even to this day. Again, friends, it's the difference between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. One leads to foolishness. One leads to peace and abundance. The choice is yours. Let's close in prayer.
Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for giving us your wisdom, giving us your truth to lead us and guide us through this life. We thank you, God, that we don't have to fumble through the dark searching for answers, but you have given us answers. You have given us truth. You have given us your revelation. And Lord, when we not only embrace that, but then act upon it, you tell us that that is the path to true wisdom. And so we just thank you for that, Lord, that you have given us your word to guide us. I pray, Lord, that we would have the supernatural Holy Spirit-inspired discernment to see the, the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God on a daily basis. That as we go through our lives and we make choices and as we seek to live to honor you, that you would give us eyes to see the, the truth that you've revealed. And give us the resolve, like Daniel and his friends, to, to stand in that truth and to champion that truth and to walk boldly in the light of that truth. Not only so that we might experience your blessing in our lives, but so that we might show the world that there is a better way, a way that leads to life and life abundant. We thank you, Jesus, that you have made a way for us. We thank you that you are our source of victory. We thank you that you are our provider of hope. We pray all this in your great name. Amen.